and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jordana R. Goodman, Assistant Professor at Chicago Kent College of Law. We will discuss her article, Ms. Attribution, How Authorship Credit Contributes to the Gender Gap, which is published in the Yale Journal of Law and Technology. So welcome back to the show, Jordy, to discuss this paper for the second time. You had the pleasure of talking about it with Sarab a while back. Uh, but I love it so much that I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about it as well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to update you on this. Cool. So because this is my first opportunity to interview you about this excellent paper, I kind of wanted to start with my own kind of initial questions just to kind of get listeners situated so they understand the nature of the project and and what you're getting at. So I, I wonder if you could start by talking about what exactly is the the gender gap and what particular gender gap or, or gender gaps are you talking about in this particular article? Sure. So the gender gap generally refers to first a gender binary that we look at men and women. Um, uh, and, and what we're looking at in this gender gap is generally one of these genders is lagging behind another gender in some statistically significant way. Um, in this paper and in law, generally we associate the gender gap with women being left behind or left out. Um, and the difference between the number of women present or the number of men present would constitute the gap. Here, I've changed it a bit. I'm not really looking necessarily at who is present and who is absent. That uh, is the baseline. What I look at who was hired in a law firm and who is actively practicing in that law firm as my baseline. And then I look to the gender gap of who is signing office actions and um, patent applications. Uh, that is who is getting credit that is the gap that I am talking about, the gap between people who are present and people who are credited. So the, the bulkier paper is focused on attribution in the practice of law with, at least to my reading, an implication that we ought to think about sort of broadening the scope of application of the observations that you're making in the paper. And in, in light of that, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how attribution credit or authorship credit attribution works generally in the practice of law, at least, you know, to the best you can kind of pin it down in a unified sort of way. Sure. I think that attribution is really important in all aspects of law. First, just from a personal sense of pride and ownership. Uh, I think everybody remembers when they were young and their parents put their accomplishments up on the refrigerator and you feel this real sense of ownership that you belong, that you're supported, that you are uh, fulfilled in this way. And law and, and professional credit is really no different. As soon as you sign your name to something, you are taking ownership of that for good and for bad. And sometimes you have the choice to put your name on it, to share that credit, or to not put your name on it. But as a junior practitioner, generally that choice isn't yours. The senior partner or the senior associate is the one who is going to choose who gets that credit and who shares that credit. Or sometimes the form chooses for you that there's only one spot for that credit. And so either the client or traditional um, law firm policies will dictate who gets that credit. 
But that's really meaningful in, in many ways, not just for self-ownership, but also for perpetuating your career. Because if you want to show your next job that you did something, they usually ask for a writing sample. If your name isn't on there, they're going to probably assume that it's still yours because it's known that there's a lot of ghost writing, especially done by junior associates. But you're going to be viewed exactly as that, a junior associate, because you didn't sign your name. As soon as you start signing your name, you can get ownership, you can be viewed as more senior, um, and, and it's easier not only to lateral in firms, but also to get more clients. Um, because if you're signing your own work, then you can show that work to other clients with your previous client's permission um, and, and continue this growth of your career in a way that if you're a ghostwriter, you just can't. So in your paper, you refer to a concept called the Matthew effect, as well as its corollary, the Matilda effect. I was familiar with the first and not with the latter. So thank you for introducing me to this interesting uh, twinned set of, of concepts. I wonder if you could describe them for listeners and explain a little bit how they figure into the thesis of, of your paper and your observations. Sure. So the legal Matthew effect is really where a social advantage leads to a further advantage. And then over time, these advantages create widening gaps between those who have more and those who have less. Kind of think of it as a snowball. If you start with a bigger snowball, it's going to gain more traction and snowball even even more um, in, in the Matthew effect. Or sometimes people refer to this as the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. Uh, the corresponding legal Matilda effect um, is really referencing women and their credit, that women scholars are less likely to be rewarded than men scholars with comparable accomplishments, meaning women have to work harder to get that initial snowball going for it to roll down the hill and for them to get credit. Uh, Here, what I look at is what is the credit starting off for junior associates? Do men get credit at a disproportionate rate to their female peers when they're just starting off? And how will that manifest over time in their careers, specifically in patent law? Because in patent law, you can track who's signing these office actions and application data sheets again and again and again over the course of their career. And you can see if people are not only staying in the profession, but also when they stay in the profession, are they crediting themselves more and more year over year? Is their credit snowball growing? So in your paper, you hypothesize that attribution in the legal profession, sort of attribution norms, how attribution takes place in practice, uh, is sort of affected by these Matthew, reciprocal Matthew and Matilda effects. In other words, kind of in an unseen sort of way, almost, we perpetuate this, this gender gap by giving more credit to male authors and less credit to female authors, especially in, in particular junior ones. But you don't just hypothesize that. You run an empirical study to find out whether or not the hypothesis is true. And surprise, surprise, turns out that your study does substantiate the hypothesis. But I'm getting ahead of myself, right? Maybe you could talk a little bit about the study, what specifically you studied, and why you chose to study that particular uh, feature of legal practice. 
Sure. So let's start with the why. Uh, before I became an academic, I worked as a patent prosecutor for six years. Uh, I worked at wonderful firms in the Boston area where I learned how to prosecute a patent from writing patent applications to responding to office actions to uh, guiding clients through very difficult decisions. And I did this alongside my male peers uh, and, and through many other contacts in the Boston area and in the greater United States. I talked to people who had different experiences that I thought were based on gender. That is, were they assigned different clients? Were they getting redlined by their partners more? Were they talked down to at a disproportionate rate? Were they retained or were they told that they should go seek mentorship at another firm uh, to continue their legal practice? And that really started me thinking about how I can quantify this. Is this happening and happening at a disproportionate rate for some people kind of anecdotally, or is this happening more on a, on a massive scale? And so with the help of Harity Patent Analytics, who I could not do this without, thank you so much, um, I, I was able to get around 200,000 um, patent applications in their corresponding office actions. And I looked at who was signing these. Uh, at the end of an application data sheet, this is a, a piece of paper that you submit with your patent application. There is generally room for one signature at the bottom if this is prosecuted by a patent practitioner. This name signed at the bottom will often be associated with a, a number for people who passed the patent bar. If you pass the patent bar, it has nothing to do with whether you went to law school. It has to do with whether you have an undergraduate degree in a uh, engineering or a science. Um, and if you passed a bar exam that is put forth by the United States Patent and Trademark Office. But once you're qualified, you can now sign these and prosecute patents on your own uh, for your clients. And so what I did was I matched this number to people who were signing office actions recently in the you know 20, 2010s and up. Um, and I wanted to see if junior practitioners were signing at a disproportionate rate by gender and if the gap was greater when you were practicing for, let's say, 30, 35 years. And so to do this, you can tell when somebody passed the patent bar simply by ordering all of these numbers, because you get a lower number if you've practiced longer, you get a higher number if you've practiced uh, uh, for, for less time. My number is 72969. Uh, uh, so I can tell that I passed the patent bar in uh, 2013 based on, uh, based on this evaluation. Mm -hmm. So just to clarify, are there features of the data set that you use that made it especially useful for evaluating the questions that you wanted to ask? In other words, was there a, was there a sort of a data-based reason for using this particular set of information as opposed to other kinds of legal filings? Yes, uh, I think that patent law lends itself very well to this kind of study um, because you can tell year over year, first of all, if somebody is practicing, you can tell when they passed the bar and if they continue to practice soon after they pass the bar because you have that number. Um, and that number is always associated with this person. So if you have two people with the same name, 
you can identify them by their number, which is on the same form. I don't have to go digging. I don't have to match by state. I know if they moved firms, they're the exact same person because they keep the same patent bar number. So based on your evaluation of this data, what what were your findings? Yeah, so I found that there was quite a few women practicing uh, that in certain technology centers, especially in biotechnology and chemistry, that was my practice area, there is 20 to 31% unique female patent practitioners um, who were who were practicing patent law for the, the time of my study. Um, that was, well, it sounds like a low number because, you know, it's not 50-50, but for me and my experience in firms, that seemed about right. Um, the problem was the gap in attribution, especially in other areas. So, in semiconductors, for example, in the technology area, there were 15% of all practitioners in that area um, were female, but only 10% of all patent applications and 10% of all office action responses were signed by women. So that's about a 50% gap there. In biotechnology, though, you didn't really have that much of a gap. You have 31% of practitioners who are practicing were female in biotechnology and 30% of the patent applications and 30% of the office action responses were signed by women. And even though that is a statistically significant gap because of the number of people in my sample, it doesn't seem like that wide a gap um, to, to overcome. And it could probably be attributed to who is senior and who is junior. But I couldn't distinguish that with the semiconductors or the computer architecture and software uh, technology centers, because the gap there was so wide that even if you take into account things like um, people working uh, uh, more part time or uh, if they're more junior, um, you still have gaps. I was also able to look at this accumulation over time um, to see kind of where those gaps were. And I noticed that people who were practicing um, uh, you know, for, for less time than I was, that they had a registration number of 75,000 or higher, that there was still a gap between the attribution rate of the male and female practitioners. But that gap wasn't nearly as large as the gap that I found for people who were practicing for over 30 years with patent bar numbers between 40,000 and 30,000. And certainly among the highest credited patent practitioners, well, almost all of those were men. In fact, in 2017, all of the people who wrote and signed over 300 office action responses were men. I couldn't find a single woman. Um, so these are things that I, I really hope change, um, but I think it was important findings because it's not showing that this is a remnant of something that was happening in the 70s and 80s and 90s, but these numbers are from 2016 to 2020. So if I'm understanding what you're saying about the study correctly, it, it, it sounds like when there are fewer women practicing in a particular area, women are get less attribution. And when there are more women practicing in a particular area, women get more attribution relative that, that, that approaches parity with their actual kind of representation within the area. Is that right? Yes, that's, that's correct. And that parallels what Rosbeth Cantor found, that uh, there are different types of group representation. As you have uniform groups, you only have one group 
of, uh, of people. You have skewed groups. That is a ratio of about 85% to 15%, one versus the other. A tilted group, which has a ratio of around 65% to 35%. And balanced group, which would be a typological ratio of somewhere between 60 and 40 and 50-50. And in skewed groups, um, you can notice that um, one group is going to be significantly underrepresented, those 85 to 15 percent. That 15 percent isn't going to be heard very much. But as soon as you get to around a tilted group that is around 35 percent, maybe even 25 percent, according to another study, suddenly these people get credited and heard even if they are not at a 50-50 ratio, which m matches very well with the study showing that women who represent 31% of patent practitioners in biology are getting very good credit attribution for their presence. So reading your paper, I understood you to be saying that your study had both quantitative and qualitative elements to it. I wonder if you could talk about the, qual the qualitative elements as well, uh, how they informed your quantitative approach and why you incorporated this kind of dual method of studying the question. Sure. Well, in addition to just being interested in hearing the stories of people who were in this data set, I think it's important to note that numbers aren't going to tell a whole story. There are so many reasons why there is a gap. And I wasn't comfortable opining about why, even from my own experiences, without getting confirmation from people who are currently practicing. And so what I did is I contacted those highly attributed patent practitioners, the ones who were crediting themselves on over 300 office action responses a year, um, either solely or jointly. Um, the reason why I contacted them is because with the average office action response taking between four to eight hours, this meant that they were crediting themselves on anywhere from 1,200 to 2,400 hours worth of work um, in a year, and that doesn't count patent applications. And so I really wanted to know what was going on with those practices. I was really grateful that so many people wanted to talk to me because I was able to collect somewhere between 15 and 20 interviews for this paper. Um, and people told me so many different reasons for, for why this might be happening. And, and I put some of those reasons um, in, in the paper. It's ironic, of course, that, um, that I was able to talk to so many patent partners, and I'm very grateful to those who did talk to me, um, but they all wanted to talk under condition of anonymity. Um, probably because everybody recognizes that there is a problem um, and they want to be part of the solution. But sometimes being part of the solution and admitting that you were also part of a problem can lead to ramifications that I didn't want to put them um, in, in harm's way and I didn't think they wanted to be there either. And so I think anonymity was the way to go in this particular part of my paper. <laughs> so I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your recommendations based on your study, uh, both the qualitative and quantitative aspects of it, and sort of what you think might be done to mitigate the gender gap, reduce, if not solve, the problem that, that you identify. And in particular, I also kind of wonder, like, to the extent you were talking to people in doing your qualitative research, did you get a sense that there was an interest in 
implementing some kind of change, whatever that might be. Yeah, uh, I I got a sense that some people, not everybody, but some people are very interested in change or are unaware of how small actions can have really big effects. So the first thing that I want to highlight is how important attribution is. Some people who are signing a lot of these office action responses and application data sheets just don't feel like that signature is meaningful anymore. I remember the first time I signed my first office action response. I remember the first time I signed my patent application. I probably even could remember the client if I, if I thought about it for, for a minute. That stays with you forever. And reminding people who have been doing this for so many years that that feeling is going to stay with you forever as a junior, I think is a really important small first step. The second thing is informing them that you can share credit. About half of the people who I interviewed had no idea that more than one patent practitioner could sign an office action response. They didn't know that you could click on an application data sheet and add another line if you wanted to, because it's just not done. It's not practiced. It wasn't taught to them by their mentors, so it would be very odd for them to perpetuate it. By me telling them that this is possible and showing them that this was successful, uh, they were able to then present it to their firm. I don't know if they've actually implemented this yet, but at least the knowledge is there. I think the third aspect is involving the United States Patent and Trademark Office to do something a bit more substantial. Even though it's possible to add more practitioner names in all of these areas, it's very unlikely that somebody's going to do so unless required to. And that requirement could either be because you added another line explicitly saying, if there are two patent practitioners, please name them both, um, and, and having those lines open as opposed to having it kind of hidden in a click-through version, um, or explicitly requiring credit of all patent practitioners in the making of a patent application, I think that would be another important method to, to um, evaluate and see if it would be possible to pilot. Because even if you try to tell everybody that this is how it's going to work, you can, you can tell the patent partners uh, that they could change something, but if the junior person is the one looking at the form, uh, they're going to see that something is possible um, and, and maybe advocate for themselves as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I got to say, I mean, as I was reading, rereading, paper, uh, it struck me that, you know, behavioral science is coming under a lot of fire lately, but you identify an area where it seems like a kind of behavioral science type modification might actually have pretty significant effects in modifying practices that people are adhering to, not for any good reason, but just out of sort of inertia. After all, it strikes me that in the context of legal practice, attribution is basically free. I mean, for the partner, there's no real downside to attributing to junior associates. You, you get paid just as much either, either way. That's exactly right. Not only do you get paid just as much and what are you doing wasting you know, so, some ink uh this is all filed online anyway it's not like anybody is paying anything more it's it's the freest form of compensation you can possibly have but i think it would speak volumes especially for people who recognize that they are behind their peers i expect that 
somebody might think, okay, I have signed seven applications. The other person next to me has signed nine. No big deal. That's just how the chips fell this year. And eventually they might notice that this gap is wider and wider and wider, and they might feel left out eventually. But at that point, it's too far gone for you to try to correct in a meaningful way. And you might feel like you need to go elsewhere. By reminding everybody how important credit is and the celebration is both publicly and privately, I think we can do really wonders for both retention and potentially um, a feeling of belonging separate from retention uh, at, at law firms across the country. So reading your paper and thinking about the problem that you identify, I couldn't help but wondering whether merely moving to a more equitable citation practice isn't enough, given the historical imbalances created by the paired Matthew and mm. and Matilda effects. I mean, maybe we also need a more kind of intentional citation practice and a sort of awareness of the sort of historical effects that are framing where we are now. Yes, I think that there's a lot of wonderful works showing how attribution has underserved female populations in this country uh, and that women are often left off as inventors and as patent practitioners over the years. That being said, I don't want to see anything intentionally over-crediting women because right now we're seeing things that are implicitly over-crediting men. I don't think that it's fair for any gender to be credited disproportionately to the work that they've done, and I don't advocate for any program that would do so. However, I do think that an awareness of what is currently happening is really important. And having people challenge their biases in law firm settings and in institutional settings is going to be a really important aspect of this process going forward. So papers like this and papers that are written by so many others in the field, um, Colleen Chen is is writing quite a bit about the attribution of inventors. Um, Paul Gulliuz and Rachel have written amazing work about um, the credit of women in the federal circuit. I think that this is important work to do so that we can challenge our biases with numbers, uh, as well as with the stories of, of so many women and men who have experienced the law firm currently and, and 20, 30, 40 years ago. So your paper looks specifically at patent prosecution and, and patent practice, an area where it seems like there are available tools that make the problem relatively easy to fix. And an area, in addition, in which attribution is very low cost, if not effectively no cost. But I couldn't help feeling that the problem you're describing is not limited to patent prosecution and patent practice, but in fact extends across other areas of legal practice as well as other professions. But we we can stick to legal practice for the time being. And and I couldn't help but think about the area of legal practice in which the two of us are currently engaged, namely legal academia. 
right? Where attribution is definitely not low cost. So what, if anything, should we draw from the insights in your paper about other areas, do you think? Yes, I, I think legal academia is, is something that I would like to tackle uh, in the future, um, especially when it comes to credit. Because for junior scholars especially, you're told not to co-author, that your works should be your own. And I'm a trained scientist. There is no single author paper in nature in recent memory that, that I can think of because, of course, you share the credit with other people. And yes, putting aside that papers in peer-reviewed journals also have a bias against naming women. But nonetheless, there is still a culture of sharing credit. I think it's important to note that if you have two or three people working on a paper, that they can all put in significant amounts of work and they should all get credit for that work. We shouldn't need to wait till tenure to co-author. I also think that it's very important to credit junior scholars for the work that they've done because the junior scholars are far more diverse than the senior scholars in the field. And so if three or four or five different professors are saying the exact same thing, maybe it's important to do a bit more research to find the most junior person saying it or the person who has the least citations. And if you're wondering how to look up who has the least citations, well, Google has the answer. You can just go to scholar.google.com and see who needs a bit of a, of a lift. Celebrating other people's paper is completely free. The difference between 250 footnotes and 275 footnotes is nothing when it comes to a law review, but it's everything when it comes to junior scholars. And so being more intentional about finding both the original source and the most worthy source, I think would, would do a great deal for academia. Awesome. Well, in light of that, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about where you're taking this research project in the future. Yeah, so I'm really excited to talk about the importance of attribution and equity in the patent office. I'm currently writing a new paper that looks at um, uh, that that looks at the institutional ways that we construct patent examination and how that can disparately impact people of color and people who are not Christian and people who do not speak English as their first language. I'm also conducting a study with um, Paul and Rachel uh, looking at the federal circuit and looking at how women and people of color fare uh, in oral arguments compared to their white and male counterparts and finding that win rates uh, are, are not as different as we would expect. So the attribution differences of who gets the opportunity to argue is really where we're seeing the barriers in, in litigation at the federal circuit. Uh, I'm doing another study with Mike Schuster looking at the, under, uh, the, the differences in how women's patents are prosecuted, that is, women inventors are not getting as high a success rate as their male counterparts when applying for patent applications and also when responding to office actions. So what I'm really trying to do is look at the different areas of the patent office and patent prosecution process and patent litigation process 
and see where we can do better. Because the overall intent of my work is to look at the different pieces of the pipeline and see who has more control over that, to see who is the best group or area to tackle the problem and what resources can we give them to tackle it as easily and as quickly as possible. Because as soon as we start plugging these holes, I think that we're going to see equity escalate at at a, a much higher rate than we've currently seen it in the past. Amazing. Well, Jordi, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about this paper for the second time. And I hope you'll return in the future to talk about some more papers uh, as, as they come into being. I would love to. Thank you so much for this opportunity. This was, this was wonderful. Oh, 